What's up, queens? Welcome to the Female Dating Strategy Podcast, the meanest female-only podcast on the internet. I'm Ro. I'm Savannah. And I'm Lilith. And today, our special guest is Louise Perry, journalist and author of the new book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, and the founder of the a nonpartisan feminist think tank called The Other Half. Welcome, Louise Perry. Hello. Thank you for having me. I know we've been trying to get you on the podcast for a little bit because we've seen some of your work that's been very FDS-esque. <laughs> and a lot of people from FDS have actually shared some of your work when you're talking about how the sexual revolution didn't quite pan out the way that a lot of feminists expected it to and why. Um, so I think it'd be great to just jump right into the meat of it. What's your opinion on this? Like, <laughs> What happened in the sexual revolution that ended up leaving so many women sexually dissatisfied? Can I just start by saying that I'm a big FGS fan? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> a male friend of mine introduced me to it like three or four years ago. Go, I think when you were still on Reddit because you're not on Reddit anymore are you no I hate that place and he was like you're going to love this and I <laughs> and I binged on all of your intro stuff and yeah very aligned so yeah so the sexual revolution I mean that I think the basic error that sexual revolutionaries made I mean to the extent that anyone planned it it's a combination of things that have all happened at the same time, right? Some of it is just to do with the fact that the pill arrived and for the first time in the history of the world, women could suspend their fertility and that was going to have massive social consequences, right? No matter the, the political context. But there is also a, there is also the political story of the sexual revolution, which is all about tearing down the old sexual norms. And there were clearly people who were cheerleaders for that, many of them feminists, who assumed that this would be in women's best interests. I think the reason that that hasn't worked out, and there's plenty of evidence to suggest that women are not actually any happier than they were on average pre-sexual revolution and sexual violence has not gone away. And I don't think there's really much evidence to suggest that sexual violence has even reduced. And there are all sorts of new problems that have arrived on the scene. You know, it was not considered normal for our grandmothers, for instance, to be expected to be choked by a sexual partner. <laughs> Yeah, that's such a contentious, that issue in particular is so contentious because first of all, for everyone's aware that most of that became normalized because of porn. Mm -hmm. And I don't know to the extent that this is anywhere true, but a lot of men are like, oh, I'm actually not into the choking. It's that women are really into the choking. So I do it. And then a lot of women are like, well, I do it because I think men like it. So it's become like this odd, like mirror image of each other where like nobody likes doing it, but then people keep doing it. Right. It's very <laughs> odd. Like, yeah, <laughs> there might be like a select amount of women who are actually into it, but there's just so much more women who are like, I just thought this was part of sex because this is the way that sex has been modeled for me. And then there's a lot of men Again, there's the men who are really into the domination and degrading aspect of it, but then a lot more men who are doing it because they also feel like it's a sexual performance they have to do. Now, the result is a bunch of traumatized women, especially the ones who necessarily weren't expecting it, uh, to feel you know, like they're being attacked during sex and that it's normal to feel like you're being literally assaulted during sex. And then men who think it's normal to do that can't sexually function without that kind of extreme violence. And then the men who are sort of reluctantly doing it because they, you know, they don't like it either, but they just feel like, oh, this is the thing that women keep asking for. It's extremely dysfunctional. Yeah. And you can't blame women and some men for looking at this and thinking, I thought this wasn't how this was supposed to turn out. <laughs> you know, this was, the sexual revolution was supposed to be about liberating women, right? And it's complicated, right? It's not entirely a bad news story. There are certain ways in which women's lives have improved 
something like domestic violence used to be treated so much less seriously than it is now. We didn't have things like refuges, which were created by second wave feminists. That's a really solid example of genuine improvement. But there's also plenty of examples which suggest that things haven't improved or have have gone in the opposite direction. And I think that the reason for that is to do with sexual asymmetry, the fact that men and women are different in really profound ways, including in psychological ways, which are difficult in the current climate to talk about, but which I think are no less real for that. And if what you do basically is you just remove all of the old norms and institutions that used to regulate heterosexual relations. I mean, the thing I compare it to in the book is like deregulating financial markets, just removing restrictions, sort of leaving leaving people to their own devices and they can like and, and expecting everything to work out. It's like the worship of the free market that the free market will always. I kind of get where you're going. The, the people's commitment to the free market, despite all the failures of it, is almost ideological. And they'll very specifically decide to not look at the negative effects of it to always say the free market always corrects itself. The free market is always correct. And then... Yeah, yeah, the invisible hand of sex positive wisdom. Yeah. Right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But the term I use in the book, which is a bit cheeky, is sexual Thatcherites or sexual Reaganites maybe would be the American version. Sexual Reaganites. Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Who assume that if you just sort of remove any restrictions, things are going to improve. And I say, well, no, because... Trickle down sexonomics. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because the playing field isn't even. We know that when you're talking about, well, anyone who's not like a free marketeer will recognize that the economic playing field isn't even. There are clearly people who are much have much more advantageous positions than others and are much more likely to use this new freedom to their own ends. And that will include exploiting other people within the market. You know, the the factory owners clearly have completely different interests from workers. And I think that that's also true in the sexual marketplace. And the most important division to my mind is between men and women, because the fact that women are the ones who get pregnant, the fact that we're so much smaller and less physically strong than men is so important. It means that in any the heterosexual encounter where two men and a man and woman are alone together, the woman's going to be at a physical disadvantage. You know, almost all men can kill almost all women with their bare hands. And the reverse is not true. And then you also combine that with the fact that women are, are different from men on average in quite a few psychological domains. But most impertinently to this to this instance is the fact that we are less we're lower in sociosexuality than men is what psychologists call it. So that's basically your interest in having casual sex and having lots of partners and experimenting sexually and all of that kind of stuff. There is crossover. There are some women who are high in it. There's something, you know, it's not an absolute thing by any means, but on average, men are significantly higher in in that trait than are women. I thought it was interesting because from looking back at old, and this is my perception as, as a millennial of like older feminist texts and like the push towards swinging and like the rise of the playboy culture, that it was very much based around the idea that free of the sexual restrictions of conservatism, that women's sexuality would be akin to men's, that like we are just like men, our sexuality is just like men, and we would be fucking random people and doing all the things they do, and we can do all the things they do. And that to suggest otherwise is anti-feminist. You don't believe women can make their own choices. And that any suggestion that women's sexuality might be fundamentally not as depraved even, or that like even without the conservative umbrella, that women might actually prefer more like pro-social types of sex instead of like this, you know, random encounters was met with this idea or like almost a defensiveness. And especially from the women who were 
put forth as like our sex positive role models. And that's a lot of like Gen X and the older half of millennials where they were really defensive. Like you can't shame women who are really hypersexual. You don't know what's going on with them. And then like, as they get older into their thirties, it's like a lot of them started to admit like, oh, actually I was processing a ton of trauma and that type of hypersexual behavior was a manifestation of self-harm. But it's like, it took a long time. And I don't fault people for like not understanding themselves and completely, but it, it does seem like those types of voices were purposely elevated, both in the media, which we know is run by Scrooge, but also around, among feminist circles at the expense of people like Gail Dines, who was kind of like, you know, a little bit more cautious or a little bit more nuanced about it. And I just have to wonder like, what was that kind of like, why were they so antagonistic against women who were a little more nuanced about like porn, sexual or like a sense of sexual balance? And we can kind of see the same thing today when people talk about swerfs, etc. There's just like this vitriolic anger against women who might suggest like maybe there's more to look at here rather than like the party line. What's with all the prude hatred? Why are prudes so hated? <laughs> prude phobia. Yeah, it's the prude hatred and, and it's nowadays it's swerf and turfs and it's like there's no discussion. It's just shut the fuck up. Like you're ruining feminism for us. And I'm like, but isn't there room for it? But this happened in, among millennials. And like now we're dealing with the fallout of basically deplatforming all the sex positive, but sex critical feminists. I just remembered when you were saying this, I want to get onto this, where's, where's prudephobia come from? But I just remembered this piece that was in the New York Times like last year. I can't remember exactly what the piece was about, but it was something to do with sex positive something. And in the comments underneath, the comment that had been picked by the New York Times readers, editors as, as like, you know, the starred comment was apparently a woman saying, yes, my daughter is extremely sort of sexually liberated when she goes jogging in the park she will sometimes like pick up a man and go have sex in the bushes and then continue on her jog and this was big and I personally read that and I was like this is a lie written by a man <laughs> I do I do not believe this comment by a rapist who stalks the park looking for women who are going for jogs that's a confession of guilt <laughs> yeah this is a hundred percent not like what mother would write that about her daughter and also just no like this is a lie. But I thought it was so interesting that the New York Times picked it as its starred comment, because that's apparently the ideal. This is what liberated sexuality looks like, because that is a fundamental mistake. <laughs> <laughs> that's insane. What I find so disingenuous about that is like, on the other hand, we'll talk about safe sex, right? <laughs> this is like where I feel like they can't make a decision between what they want to do because like, it's important to practice safe sex, but also, yay, have sex with random people in the bushes you don't know. Do you remember during COVID where there was the guidance on how to have safe sex during COVID? And it was like, always wear a mask, don't face your partner. Which is insane, right? <laughs> Use a glory hole, that kind of stuff. It was so stupid because it's like, you're literally like touching bodies already. Like, <laughs> Yeah, you won't get COVID, you will get half a dozen other things. But, <laughs> uh. So this question of prudephobia, and my theory as well about why I think it's worse in America I think it's harder to do things like criticise porn in America than it is in the UK. At least, well, I don't know, I seem to be getting away with it, but my impression is it's harder for American feminists. And I think that's to do with the fact that there's this real fear of being aligned in any way with the Christian right. And you don't want to accidentally say something that would suggest that you might agree with them on anything, even if they are actually right on something like porn. Yeah. So maybe that's what it is. I mean, that's exactly what they do. They say if you are critical of any of these things, even like card carrying long term feminists, suddenly you're aligned with the Christian right and you want these people to die and you hate everyone. You're slut shaming. You hate everyone. You're kink shaming. Even though we probably kink shame, a lot of the original like 
feminist UP who wore things like BDS critical. Like they were very careful to talk about it from the perspective of like power dynamics, et cetera. Now, and now we're having that conversation while we're talking about consent and me too. But a lot of these things were started, you know, a generation ago and got lost in translation because I like to call them like pick me sexuals. A lot of these women who just like wanted to be like the baddest sex positive bitch on the block who's down for anything, you know, wherever, whenever. It's like they wanted to take the spotlight and get all the attention. And then it just sort of drowned out a lot of the more reasonable issues. Now, like the problem is, is like now those of us who've either lived through it or experienced it now, we're like, what the hell happened? And like, why are all these guys really gross, porn sick? And we're not any more sexually satisfied than we were, than you maybe our mothers were. I think also the media ecosystem encourages the sex positive stuff. Definitely. Because it's very readable. And I think also that if you look around at anyone who's writing a column about sex, there aren't any, it's just me really, who's writing like the brutish stuff. And I would never ever write about my own sex life as a rule, because I think it would be unhealthy to do that. I think it's like important to have boundaries and to not expose my husband, you know. So kind of by definition, if you're going around writing about your own sex life, you probably don't have very healthy boundaries and you're willing to expose your partner to public scrutiny in a way that he probably wouldn't appreciate. It's also kind of needs interesting anecdotes. It can't just be like, oh, we have like, you know, like nice vanilla sex a couple of times a week isn't very interesting. You need to be having lots of like exciting sexual encounters. So if you go to any of these magazines that have like a sex columnist, you're going to get the really sex positive stuff. Although interesting, there was a, I can't remember her name now off the top of my head, but the woman who writes a sex column for Vogue, where she does often write this sort of, you know, the empowering narrative around having casual sex. She wrote a really sad article about how porn has affected her recently, which was actually really moving. And I mean, she didn't come to the conclusion, the right conclusion in my mind, that actually this whole, the whole thing is, is terrible. She, she's not there yet, you know, but clearly, actually, she's not happy doing all of this and it is clearly coming from a place of insecurity and trauma but you get a lot of clicks from this content and to be honest from exploiting young women talking about their their intimate lives and it also gives the impression that that's normal and aspirational yeah i mean we've made the comment that there's no qualifications to be like a sex positive educator and it shows i mean honestly like you're almost like toggling between women who are deeply mentally ill, some of them. Like, in fact, there was like this sex positive feminist who I think I can't remember her name exactly, but she was like struggling with bipolar disorder and borderline personality disorder. And while she's doing this, she's having like the sex in the bushes with random men encounters and then saying like, this is really powering for me and I'm taking control of my sexuality. And it's like nobody at the magazine said like, maybe this is a manifestation of her struggling mental illness, right? It feels so exploitative when you watch it. Cause like it, on first glance, I'm like, wow, like she's really, really lying to us about these encounters. And like, sometimes she'll admit it later, like, oh, it wasn't that great. But then it's like, well, she's also kind of lying to herself because she's in the middle of a mental illness. So I can't exactly blame her because she doesn't have the perspective. But it's like the people who, who run the magazines have that perspective or they should. Well, they don't care about an experience. Of- or they're making money. A lot of these magazines are owned by like rich old guys. And then, yeah, like you said, Louise, they're exploiting young women writers, you know, trauma dumping, essentially. Yeah. And often not paying them very much as well. Yeah. They're making like $20,000 a year working for, I don't know, BuzzFeed or something talking about, you know, the horrible sexual traumas they've been through as a result of, you know, hypersexual culture. Yeah. I mean, there was this great piece by Sarah Dytum, I think in Unheard a year or two ago, about all these, most of them young women who would write these really exposing pieces 
like first-hand pieces for places like Jezebel back when this was really voguish. It's a bit less so now about like like lurid sexual experiences. Or oh, I think there was a woman I remember who wrote something about having sex with her dad. Like really grim, really exposing stuff with the potential to blow up their lives, and they'd get paid like a hundred dollars or something, and in the hope that it would lead to a media career, which it of course didn't. I said like the way that the market works in journalism is absolutely not geared towards like. <laughs> there isn't really an HR department for freelancers of any kind. So if you're willing to say anything or something that would cause people to click on the article, then they'll platform you because it's just shocking enough to get people to pay attention. Yeah. And I think the sex positive stuff generates clicks. Yes. The other thing that we've noticed, at least now that we have like this podcast, is just how monetizable it is. Meaning like if we wanted to sell like different types of supplements and dildos and all these types of things, like <laughs> because that's the kind of thing that we get all the time and from other podcasters or sex educators who want to come on our podcast and talk about whatever they're doing, which is just generally, generally it's like, I went through all this trauma and my boyfriend's a scrope, but here's how I rationalize it to be okay with it. So now I'm a sex educator. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm telling you, like, that's the script every time. It's like, I went through a spiritual healing journey after my boyfriend cheated on me and then realized that we were better off in a polyamorous relationship. So now I'm, you know, I want to come to your podcast and talk about it. And like, that's, that's the market. And when I look at this, I'm like, yeah, I can see why this became really popular because like there's so many products you can sell there's so many people willing to sell their trauma for a very little money yeah so you know is it art imitating life or life imitating art at this point because there's enough women who are willing to do this that i can also see like the magazines being like well there's all these women out here that want to talk about their experiences let's talk about it i don't know what chicken or egg situation (laughs) yeah i think the sex positive thing is attractive when you are in this situation where Women are in this really pornified culture and they're competing for like a minority of men. So we know from things like dating apps that the most attractive, I think on Tinder, it's something like the most attractive 10% of men are getting 60% of the likes from women. And what that means essentially is that in that kind of casual sex market, those men can have their pick of the bunch and they can be demanding and expect pornified sex and expect choking and, you know, and expect sex on a first date and all this stuff that we know that women in general don't prefer. But you end up with this very kind of masculinized environment sexually. I mean, what men often say is like, oh, but I'm not getting any. Like, yeah, I know. <laughs> like, it's very unequal, but it is still men who are pretty much setting the terms. And women have that feeling that they have to go through the casual sex phase in order to get to a committed relationship, which is what they want. And so they're ending up being having these horrible relationships, brief relationships with men who treat them really badly. And you can see why the sex positive thing would be appealing if you feel like you're stuck in that rut, because it's a way of rationalizing your experiences to make them seem like you've chosen them and like they're not painful. Yeah. Cope. Cope. Yeah. Hashtag cope. <laughs> yeah. Cope's such a good word. It really summons up so much. Like <laughs> as with so much internet slang, it actually ha- it, like, has a really deep meaning. Yeah. Yeah. The whole thing is cope. As we're kind of unpacking what happened, like, what do you think is the push for the future? Because in a couple different ways, we can attack this question, because the first one, obviously, is, you know, is it true? And if it is true, we're in trouble as a species that even without the invention of dating apps, like, is it true that only women are really only attracted to a small minority of men? Or is it just like a dating app problem where the dating app leans itself to that type of behavior. Because I feel like if we're at the point where 
80 to 90% of the male population is unacceptable to at least a large percentage of women, then something's basically got, I'd say from the FDS perspective and how we've thought about it is like, we need to start just being brutally honest to their face about why they suck. Because I think part of it is like, them living in a bubble for so long about what women actually want, like an ego protective bubble that everyone builds for men. And I know partially know why it's because all these incels freak out if you give them the slightest criticisms. And because men are much more likely to vote with their dollars against something that disrespects them, whereas like women just like absorb the disrespect so easily. It's one of the most more frustrating things about watching the difference between how men and women interact with anything really. But as a consumer, if a man gets up on you know, uh, writes an article or gets up on television or says something and says to men like, okay, if you're not sexually attractive to women, like you need to uh, watch, watch your weight and put on, here's like buy some new clothes here. And like basically tell them like grooming habits or like different types of interactions that are more positive. Then men will be like, fuck that guy, turn off the television, decide they're perfect and it's women that are the problem. But if you gender reverse that and you have like a woman like dating coach come on and be like, uh, girls, just make sure your pictures look nice and like put on lipstick and like, uh, you know, dye your hair blonde or something like, you know, the old school rules where it was all about like trying to make yourself look like a, a specified dream girl. You'll see women just be like, OK, I got to do that. You know, so the difficulty is, is that how do you reach men to say like you guys aren't cutting it and you need to evolve a lot faster than you are if you want to actually be able to secure any type of relationship in this current market. Mm. It's also an economic story as well, isn't it? Because you've got more and more men who are unemployed who, or who are earning less than women on average and are just not attractive life partners on that basis. Arguably their own fault to a certain extent. Like, okay, so this is my side note rant, but some of it is yes, like in the US, especially a lot of manufacturing jobs and jobs used to be solid middle-class working class jobs for men to provide for family, they've gone overseas. And that that I agree with. But the other thing is like, they're not competing in the new marketplace, meaning like getting education and figuring out how to adapt their skills in the new marketplace to the extent that women are. So the question is like, is it our fault? You know, or like, is it is it their fault for not adapting? Or what do we do? Mm. Or is it just like reality? Yeah. I mean, in the West, we've shifted so much towards a knowledge and service-based economy, which and service-based economy in particular is really well suited to things that women on average are better at. Like there are some of the traits on which men and women differ. One is sociosexuality. Another is agreeableness. Women are more agreeable than men quite considerably. Again, by average, but you know, it's like a clear trend. (laughs) Not me, damn it. No. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've always had a soft spot for disagreeable women personally, but like, but the normal feminine behavior is very agreeable, right? And there are some situations in which that's really advantageous. And one of them is, you know, working in say retail or call centers and things like that, where actually women are at an advantage. And in lots of knowledge, you know, all these kind of laptop jobs, it doesn't matter whether a worker is male or female. Up until a woman has children and then she obviously has earnings fall off a cliff. But the economy has just utterly changed and it doesn't seem likely that it's going to change back, even if we wanted to. So, so yeah, men are contending with that problem. I think probably the agreeableness gap also, also is an explanation for why men are more resistant in general to that kind of those kind of dating tips, whereas women just absorb it. And similarly, why women are so amazingly sometimes accepting of men's terrible behaviour in relationships. I think a lot of it comes down to agreeableness. So that's the Jordan Peterson argument, which I find interesting that there's a little bit of convergence on that because that's 
that's a lot of the same things that he said about like, oh, women are more agreeable and this and that. I think the centralized question of that is like, is it entirely nature or is it nurture to a certain extent? I think it's something that gets sort of, um, that it's a difference that gets exaggerated by culture. Like girls' school culture is just sort of an exaggerated version of all feminine traits, you know what I mean? <laughs> like you're encouraged to be more more agreeable. Of course, it comes with like other forms of indirect aggression. But sorry, the question at the beginning was what do we do about the like 80% of men who are apparently really unattractive? Yeah. I mean, it seems like they've just devolved into porn and video games, things that are very easy for them to win at and engage in. And like women are just, as they disengage with life, I think women are just sort of more stringent because like at that point, you're just dead weight. It's not even like a, there's no benefit at that point. Yeah. And I mean, for some women, it's all a good news story. It's that actually it is now much easier to just live as a single woman for your whole life. And you don't need to have a relationship with a crappy man, whereas you might historically have ended up with one. So I think that there are absolutely women who are better off as a consequence of all of these changes. A lot of these men probably could be a lot better, but there don't seem to be the incentives in place for them to make themselves better. And they're not just in terms of things like grooming, but things like the the allure of video games and porn, which I think I think they're both products that are so are so maladaptive. Porn in particular, but video games too, because they're so designed to like hijack the young male brain, which is seeking out adventure and conflict and sexual stimulation and so on. Like that's what they're sort of driven towards. And these products just take that drive and suck these men in and they basically will end up, you know, in the worst cases, having just no interest in anything else in real life. Yeah, the powers of B are probably very excited about that because we probably would have had two or three revolutions (laughs) (laughs) now if they weren't so distracted with porn and video games. And we've made the argument that this is the perfect time for women to take over. Yeah, the female supremacy argument. We keep coming back to female supremacy because, I mean, it's, that's my vision for the future. I mean, men are dropping out of, you know, careers and university at record highs. Their dopamine receptors are getting fried by porn and video games. So they don't have the willpower or determination or motivation or just drive to do anything except jerk off and play video games. So that's going to pacify them. Honestly, that's going to prevent them from becoming terrorists. Like, you know, at least not, you know, it'll quell some of their violent tendencies, maybe, or divert them. It just seems like it's getting more randomized, right? Like, and rather than a cohesive... No, but the economy is favoring women, right? We're getting, like, we're witnessing the decline of men and the rise of women. That's what we're in the middle of. So I don't think it all has to be all doom and gloom. Like, oh, how do we change things back? Oh, everything's terrible. Like, you know, how do we change things back? No. We got to look towards the future and what the future holds is even better for women. Trust me. What are your thoughts on on the female supremacy argument, Louise? I'm curious. <laughs> what, are your yeah. like, what if we're just better than them? Because like no one ever wants to ask that question. Yeah, I just think women are cognitively superior to men, honestly, at this point. The only reason men have been more successful is because they're bigger than us and they didn't have the burden of pregnancy. But as you know, women have been able to control that and that the jobs have shifted from physical strength being a premium. It's like they've lost everything that they were good at, so to speak. They've lost their advantages and women are gaining more advantages. And, you know, it's unfortunate that a lot of women are not going to find a partner. You know, a lot of women are going to be single, but that's not so bad. I mean, again, you know, there's lots of studies now saying that single women are the happiest demographic. So, you know, who's really losing? (laughs) And like post-World War II, they had the same problem, right? It's not like it's not been throughout history, especially with wars and stuff, that there's been a surplus of women versus men. In this case, it's like there's a surplus of 
quote eligible women versus eligible men, but there's no excuse for a war for that to be the case. So the bigger question is like, yeah, we have 80% of the population that's unattractive to women and they're not being shipped off to a war somewhere where they can be preoccupied. Like what's next? Like, what do we do with them? Like, what's the next step? What are your thoughts, Louise? (laughs) There's a lot there. I think it is absolutely true that there are some women who are probably just better off on their own. And, you know, historically, there have always been, like, that's what nunneries were for. I mean, nunneries were for lots of things. But, like, actually, if you read about life in nunneries in previous centuries, it actually sounds great. (laughs) In many cases, it was actually, like, a pretty good option. Just gardening, breeding, hanging out with your besties. Like, what's not to love? Yeah, a bit of like lesbianism occasionally, like great. And I think that, so it should always be available, you know, for some women, like the uncoupled life is completely legitimate as a route, but most women don't, don't want that. Something that has to be accommodated within the female supremacy blueprint is if people stop having children, it's going to last a maximum of a hundred years, this utopian vision, and then it's just going to die out. And also people do mostly want to have children. It's something like 95% of women say that they want to have children and whether or not, you know, so some second waivers would argue that that's sort of inculcated by patriarchy. I think it's probably a much more instinctive desire than that. Yeah, I mean, people want things that are bad for them all the time. Like people want like drugs sometimes. (laughs) I don't know, some people want drugs. Some people want to eat cake or whatever, right? Like it's very normal to want things that are bad for you, right? (laughs) We wouldn't survive as a species if women didn't want to have children beyond all rationality. I don't think that there's any species that would survive if there wasn't like a strong instinct for women to, or for the females of the species to procreate. Well, mostly people have a drive to have sex and then kind of biology does the rest. But I mean, women definitely have a drive towards like caring for their their children. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could say, well, let's go out on a high. Let's like have a hundred years of female supremacy and then just like, yes, immolate as a species. Hashtag. Let's start that on Twitter. Hashtag a hundred years of female supremacy. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like humans, we pollute the environment too much. You know, we're just microplastics everywhere. We're all pretty much fucked environmentally. So, I mean, yeah, let's go out on a high note, burn out. It's a coherent take. I will give you that. It's got, it's got, it's like, yeah, internally consistent. If we do, though, want the species to last beyond 100 years, I guess we do have to find a way for men and women to get along. I mean, there there clearly is a minority of men who I think really should be in prison. Yeah, no, I agree. That's why I say work camps, like send them to to work camps so they can rebuild our crumbling infrastructure. They can create something positive, right? I feel like they would be happier working. Like it's not like it doesn't drive anybody crazy being behind bars 24-7. So a lot of like prisoners are actually happy to do work as long as it's not like, you know, abusive. Um, so, we, I mean, whatever like percentage it is of men who are so sexually violent that they just cannot, you know, I'm a straightforward carceral feminist. I'm quite happy to, to wear that label. Yeah. I think not enough men are in prison, honestly. I think the wrong types of men are in prison. Like they weigh the you know, sex crimes, crimes against women and children are not punished nearly enough. Drug crimes yeah, you don't need to go 20 years in jail for like weed. That's stupid. America's actually way too carceral on the stupidest things because I think we do have like the largest prison population in the world. Yeah, we'd want to have a lot more violence against women convictions, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's like, it's very lax when it comes to certain types of crimes. And to me, it's just like a hundred percent a function of most of our governance being men as well as the judicial system, mostly being men. And then like a few pick me women they let through. 
Yeah, but that's changing too. Women are surpassing men in law. We can like join the legal field en masse and reshape the laws to our benefit, increase the penalties for sex crimes against women. You can play at that game, right? That's just, we can change that strategy for our benefit too. Right. This episode is brought to you by our sponsors, Athletic Greens. If you're like me and you're too lazy to eat a salad every day, taking AG1 by Athletic Greens will get you the same benefit, but you don't have to wash or chop any veggies. I started taking AG1 because I wanted to ensure that I was getting a daily nutritional drink, providing a number of health benefits, such as an optimized immune system, increased energy, and better gut health. I drink my AG1 every morning after the gym and AG1 is my daily habit that makes it easy to absorb key nutrients, lead a healthy lifestyle and feel my best no matter what the day holds. One scoop of AG1 and you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics and adaptogens to help you start your day right. Add AG1 to your daily routine as a micro habit to make it easy to absorb key nutrients, lead a healthy lifestyle and feel your best every day, no matter what the day holds. One scoop, one minute, once a day, every day. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase of AG1. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash FDS. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash FDS to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. On the female supremacy point. Do you not think, though, there are kind of, so it's fairly obvious, I think, to all of us what masculine flaws are, right? The main one being violence. I mean, the masculine aggression is clearly evolved in a context where it's directed at, at other men in competition for resources and also potentially at like animals and stuff. But it's completely maladaptive a modern society where we're trying to keep the peace, you know. And there are some men who are so hyper-aggressive that they're like really, really antisocial. So that clearly is a masculine flaw, and there are others. Do you not think that there are feminine flaws as well? And that there is to some extent a sort of balance to be struck between the two sets of virtues and virtues and sins? Opening that up to the room. <laughs> Do women have flaws? Yes. But I think that women as a whole are much better at like controlling those flaws. The main reason being that men have a tendency to externalize blame. Women have a tendency to internalize blame. That's actually a flaw that I feel is actually, you know, a double-edged sword because for women, you know, the ability to accept responsibility is like the first step to improving yourself and fixing that problem. But also women accept blame for things that are not even our fault. Like it's taken to the extreme. So that's one, I think, feminine flaw, whether that's like a female thing or a socialization thing, I'm not really sure, but probably has to do with the agreeableness, right? I have a theory that Twitter is an extremely feminine environment because it, you can't possibly use physical violence on Twitter, right, by its nature. Like, you, like, can't use masculine means of aggression, so you have to use feminine means of aggression, which are to do with, like, gossip, spreading rumours about people behind their backs, yeah, exclusion. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I've experienced that on Twitter, but I rise above. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're going to choose between direct and indirect aggression, you might well choose the latter. I don't know, though. Would you rather be, like, ostracized from your community or punched in the face? It's, a bit of a... <laughs> it's actually quite a tricky choice. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I, I kind of see where you're going with it. It's like there's much higher social control that women both exert as well as experience and obey. <laughs> For whatever reason, women are much more willing or they're less willing to step outside of the, like, the societal norms because they're more likely to acquiesce to 
needing these like interpersonal relationships in a way that men are not because like the quote unquote disagreeableness of men, they're more likely to be like, fuck this. And then just like, you know, do their own thing, I guess. Okay. So the balance between men and women, is there like a, a way of, is there flaws in the feminine model? I'll have two points about this. The first point is that what I find difficult to parse out when we discuss this is like how much of like the feminine flaws are caused by patriarchy because so much of like when you look at like the women who are in prison for example so much of it is like them protecting men or meaning like i took a charge for my boyfriend because he was a drug dealer or them getting involved in like nefarious things that men started and they're more or less like just going along with it rather than necessarily being like the initiators of some of the more toxic types of relational issues or like toxic types of effects on, you know, the people around them. That being said, there's like the types of illnesses that are uniquely female, or at least mostly female, like Munchausen's by proxy and stuff like where women clearly like they need attention and martyrdom so bad and like emotional validation that they'll literally poison their children to get it. And I feel like that is a type of covert narcissism and like a feminine flaw that I guess I'm questioning like, is that something that would be necessarily balanced by men who probably just wouldn't? Yeah, I don't think men improve. (laughs) They probably just abandon the kit, you know what I mean? And then like seek glory and emotional validation other ways. What I'm trying to figure out is like, okay, if we have feminine flaws, how so are they balanced out by what men are doing? Are they just, it seems like they're most of the time made worse. <laughs> no, I think men that make them worse. Like toxic moms, like that's another one that comes up a lot in FDS is a lot of FDSers we've noticed have like toxic mothers, including myself. And so I had a tweet the other day that was very polarizing where I said like, motherhood is, is the only socially acceptable role where women have like absolute control over another person. And like, I feel like my mom definitely like exploited that power dynamic. You know, a lot of people have amazing moms and like, I'm really happy for them. Right. But, and I'm looking at the toxic moms and like, what role did the dad play in it? Like, did the dad actually like reduce the suffering on the child or did they just sort of like turn a blind eye and like, or even facilitate it in some ways. Right. Yeah. And and so often it's like about them trying to get that man in the first place. And and you look at like Jeanette McCurdy's new book about I'm glad my mom's dead or, you know, she's talking about the fact that like so much of it is like her mom wanting to like present a certain image to the male execs at Nickelodeon or like her wanting to force her daughter to be sexualized, to be agreeable and appealing to men. It's not necessarily like to her, right? Which is really, really a weird thing when you're talking about toxic moms, because so much of it's like them just being pick me's and then downloading that into their kids. And so we're like, if you take out the male element, like what else would women be pick me's for? But it's like almost all of it is them just trying to like kiss some guy's ass and like being toxic in the pursuit of a a man. Mm, Female intersexual competition. Yeah, that's like most of it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I don't think that men are necessarily like preventing toxic femininity. In like a media organization, let's say, which is where I have personal experience, it used to be that newsrooms were 100% male, right? And you'd have, apparently, according to like television, you'd have people constantly shouting and swearing at each other and really sort of macho posturing, competitive behaviors, all this very masculine energy in the room. Whereas now that's less likely to be true. But then what you read about, particularly in liberal media outlets, is new kinds of aggression. So no one's swearing at each other on the on the newsroom floor, but you have like uh, Slack channels ostracizing particular people. You've got all sorts of like covert behavior, trying to muscle people out. And, and, you know, it's just like a different form of aggression. It's just not necessarily as obvious, which is why I wonder if 
it's and it's been a long dream of feminists, right? Like, you know, if we had a society that was completely run by women, we wouldn't have any more wars, we wouldn't have any more conflict and problems. I think that's probably not true. I think we'd have different types of conflict, different means of uh, more cold wars, maybe. <laughs> I think we would die in a lot less stupid hills because the male sexual aggression or a tendency towards aggression, and, and we've talked about this, makes them die in a lot of very stupid hills for no reason because they're terrible at risk management. I think we would have way less conflict because you wouldn't see as much just dying on like taking devil's advocate just to do it. For whatever reason, like men are more compelled to take those types of risks and then never ever do an about face if they're wrong. It's weird. They don't mind being ostracized from the group as much as women do. We probably wouldn't have gone to the moon without like a really masculine society. But then arguably, what was the point of going to the moon? (laughs) So you might say, oh, fine, whatever. Don't do that kind of crazy, risky stuff that is very, seems to be very embedded in the male mind. Yeah, I find it really interesting, like the masculinity and femininity in a culture. I know a guy who shot himself just to know what it felt like. So that's like how men think, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. No woman would ever, ever do that. The curiosity. (laughs) So it's like, it's stuff like that. It's like, I want to go to the moon just to do it. So, and that's why women live longer. Because men are more likely to just take risks just to do it or because they want to feel what it feels like. But there's something like that in the male mind. If you hear of like an extremely stupid thing or the Darwin Awards are almost like entirely men because they're just doing shit just to do it. And so while I think overall, we might not have as many of the big wins, but I don't think we'd have as many of the catastrophic losses, right? Because for, you know, putting a man on the moon, we also had like Hitler and the Holocaust, right? Like the impetus for men to, you know, create efficiencies and do something better than everybody's ever done it before leads to them creating efficient killing machines called gas chambers, as well as it leads to them creating a rocket ship to the moon. So it's like, it's tough because of like, I think we would get there as a society because I think women are also infinitely curious and would want to do it. I think we could do it with a lot levels of destruction, although it would take much longer. No, I think women could have gotten, in fact, I think we would have gotten to the moon sooner if women hadn't been kept out of education for so many centuries, right? Yeah, that's true. So I think women are just as capable of like innovation. You know, you don't need to be physically strong to innovate or to have ideas and stuff, right? And in fact, nowadays, most innovation isn't just like one guy with an idea. Innovation happens on a team, generally, you know, even to build like, you know, giant, like, you know, weapons and stuff, it takes like generally multiple people working together to achieve a common goal and stuff. And like, yeah, men can work together really well, but like team management and stuff and teamwork, that's also something that women, I think, can be very good at, you know? So I I mean, I don't know if I buy the idea that, you know, if we lived in a female dominated world, would we have no wars? No, we probably would still have wars because women are just as capable of aggression as men. But I also don't, you know, think that, oh, if, you know, women ran the world, then we'd all be taken down by like gossip and nasty rumors and stuff. Because actually, I work in a male dominated sales environment. And men are just as prone to gossiping and talking shit and rumors and that kind of stuff as women are. So they really are. I'm tired of the bad PR on women for that, because all the messiest people I know. are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, men participate in office politics, too, right? Yeah, they do. I mean, on the innovation point, I my extremely hot take on this is that I actually like the thing that is most likely to destroy the planet in a single like catastrophic moment is scientific experimentation. So I don't think that as we saw with COVID, I mean, do we want to get into like lab leak on the FDS podcast, but risk taking I personally am a very risk averse person. I don't think that we should be taking loads and loads of risks in, in scientific discoveries necessarily. And actually, there's a really strong argument of saying, I don't know if any of you have ever read Civilized to Death by Christopher Ryan. 
it was a New York Times bestseller some years ago. It's very good. He basically makes the argument for anarcho-primitivism and says that actually before the agricultural revolution, people actually had much better lives in those ways. And civilization isn't all it's cracked up to be, basically. It's a great book. So the argument that you get sometimes from anti-feminists that, well, men built civilization, you know, there is a, there is a response which is like, okay, <laughs> civilization was a mistake. Is civilization really got that great though? Yeah. A lot of it's trash. It's like, right. It's like, why are you forcing us to live like this? It's actually awful. <laughs> yeah. We're all miserable now. So thanks, men. <laughs> you fill our foods with poison. And then if we want to actually have food that's not full of poison, we have to pay extra versus like before when we were agricultural based, like we could just grow it ourselves. Right. <laughs> yeah. Men built that. <laughs> yeah, feminist anarcho-primitivism is, I think, the hottest new ideology around. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's my next book. Feminism anarcho-primitivism? Nice. Maybe it should be. I don't know. I haven't decided. <laughs> I'm really curious to know, because what you talk about is very unpopular, right? And so I'm curious to know, like, what are some of the barriers that you've had in trying to bring this topic into the mainstream discussion? And how did you overcome those? Oh, so you say that, and yet I have not had nearly as much grief as I thought I would with this book. Yeah, because Gail Dines like suffered, like. Well, at least not in the U.S. I haven't seen you like main like platformed anywhere in the same way. You know, I don't see you being on Vice magazine, or unless you have for some reason, I don't know. Well, I basically haven't had much coverage from progressive outlets. Yeah, they're more likely to ignore people like you. Yeah, that seems to be what's happening. I mean, I have had like, I had a very nice review in The Observer here and I've been on mainstream things like Radio 4. But generally, the coverage I get is from centrist and conservative places and is positive. And I just haven't had very much shit. I used to get, because I also work on the We Can't Consent to This campaign, which is a campaign against the, use, the, the rough sex defense, this thing where men are claiming that women consented to lethal violence and die because of a sex game gone wrong. We've got quite a lot of grief from that one, from the kinksters who call us prudes and frigid and yada yada, but they haven't succeeded. It turns out that they actually have basically no influence in politics. That's good news. I mean, they're trying to change that though, hence the reason why they are disingenuously trying to conflate a sexual fetish or a kink with a sexual orientation. So that's why you see, for example, fetish gear at Pride. That's why they're trying to make the argument that if somebody doesn't want to see, or for example, somebody who is repulsed by seeing, I don't know, a dom, you know, walking a sub on a leash like a dog, then that's the same as being repulsed by two gay men kissing, for example. So they don't have influence in, you know, BDSM is still quite marginalized to some degree, but they are trying to change that by hitching their wagon to the LGBT plus argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And using gay liberation as a model. Yes, yeah. And trying to conflate a sexual fetish with an orientation. Yeah, they're doing their best, <laughs> but they so far, they're coming up against a lot of opposition, which I hope remains true. Well, in the US, it's mostly coming from conservatives because of things like libs of TikTok. And the left, again, is not platforming any type of sex critical voices at all. So it's like it's your team right or team blue. And if anybody in the middle who's like, yeah, I don't think it's okay for a man in a dog costume to wave like a pink dildo in front of a child's face, then it's like you're a conservative, right? <laughs> you know, let's be real come election time. They're often shocked at how people vote and then they just blame 
anything else other than like people being rightfully horrified by some by some of these polarizing culture issues that I think a reasonable person who is an average person who has kids or something would be upset by. Speaking of kind of the LGBTQ arc, have you noticed a difference between what's being said in heterosexual relationships versus LGBTQ relationships as it pertains to the sexual revolution? Because on our end, like I know that this is part of the controversy of FDS is that we pretty much exclusively focused on heterosexual relationships and then secondarily women loving women. And so a lot of the other people felt like, okay, who are part of the LGBT community who didn't understand the dynamics of straight relationships would be like, why is there not gay male representation with female dating strategy? You know, <laughs> there's some of that built, but there'd be like gay men or who would be like, well, I'm equal with my partner and we split everything equally and we don't have this problem or like, or even like lesbians who felt like, although I think lesbians, I think bisexual women really get it who date women. No, I think a lot of lesbians get it, though. Like, they understand it. Yeah, a lot of women, lesbians get it, especially if they were compelled to uh, have sex with men when they were younger because of cultural pressure. But, like, there's, like, this attitude that, like, everything in gay relationships is the models for straight relationships, not understanding there's all these, like, adversarial effects. So I feel like a lot of the feminine, like, the intersectional feminists have sought to, like, de-gender and de-sex relationships to the detriment of women because not acknowledging that there are serious sex-based differences both in risk and reward and what that's the lens that we go through is that some things are riskier for women and lower rewarding versus for men has effectively like neutered the conversation about sexual dynamics between men and women in mainstream media because as soon as you start saying like yeah it's really unfair for like women have to do all this type of sexual labor like why can't we when we're dating like vet men for xyz or not do it this way or expect men to pay for dates or contribute more or contribute in things that are more stereotypically masculine and then they'll say like no that's not the equality model the equality models everything has to be the exact same thing on paper and then like you'll have the lgbtq community run and like well we're parents and we split it this way and i'm like yes but you're also not in a heterosexual relationship which has its own differences. So I'm rambling here, but like, what's your opinion on that? I completely agree with you. You can't just ignore sex differences. It's one of the things that I noticed a lot when I was reading about things like catching feelings and like how to have feminist hookups and all this kind of stuff that they talk in sort of gender neutral terms about things like feeling distressed by hookups or trying to like not emotionally attached to partners and stuff and it would be presented in a gender neutral way i was like oh, come on <laughs> like we all know that the vast majority of people who are experiencing this women like you can't represent this as being something entirely equally distributed between the sexes which is like my whole big part of my whole argument against hookup culture that is bad for women which i think we all agree on so i deliberately made a decision in the book to only write about straight people and i don't i only very briefly mention gay and lesbian relationships mostly just to sort of underline the fact that they are good evidence of male and female sexuality being quite different the fact that lesbian and gay communities have quite different cultural different cultures and different expectations i figured that like 95 percent of people are straight and so it is fine to sometimes deliberately talk only about straight relationships i'd love to read a gay man writing on some of this from a more like critical perspective Okay, so in, at least in the States, especially around the time when like the push for gay marriage and uh, more visibility for LGBTQ people was being platformed, there were actually a lot of gay men who had podcasts and like articles and stuff. 
one of the more infamous being someone like Dan Savage. I don't know if you've heard of him at all, like Savage Love. But yeah, they were effectively the pioneers of gender neutral advice. And now even Dan Savage has had to walk back so much of it. <laughs> like now that he's older. And now a lot of women who, you know, at the time, you know, maybe like 2008, 2009, when this was novel, you know, he used to have all these rules about sex work and then like age gap relationships. And now him like acknowledging like actually the nuances are quite different between gay relationships versus straight relationships. And I understand why they wanted to platform our LGBTQ people. So I'm not like saying it was a bad thing because quite frankly, they weren't allowed to talk about these things before. And then there was a thought at the time that like, well, gay men like men too. So then there may be some similarities here and like they can kind of talk about it. And the effect actually was the opposite. Is that like a lot of, you know, even Sex in the City, I think a lot of the showrunners were gay. So like there's a lot of shoehorning female sexuality through the lens of gay men. And Samantha is basically a gay man. Yeah. Once again, being like cast through a male gaze, but just instead of the straight male gaze, it's like the gay male gaze about what sexuality is for women. And like nobody can help us in this regard, but ourselves really. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. This is quite a big conversation itself, but I think it goes both ways a little bit. I think there's also been a sort of, if you read something like, or watch something like Will and Grace, it is sort of like gay men imagined through a straight female lens. It's not actually a good representation of what gay life is like. So I think, yeah, you can definitely overestimate the extent to which gay men and straight women are experiencing dating in the same way just because they're both attracted to men. Yeah, I think it's an error to assume that it's going to be identical, even though obviously there is variation among individuals. I think the mistake is always looking to men to answer any question. And that's why a female dating strategy takes a position like we're our best experts. If you understand it as power dynamics, instead of just like, there's some magical guru out there that's going to give you a love potion or spell or whatever to keep keep you from being affected by patriarchy, there isn't. And when I see on the on the left a lot, and I've joked about this about it just being like bizarro world religion, you know, instead of like praying for a good man, you know, there are more you have women that are like, oh, I'm a witch and I do all this like Wicca stuff. And like and it's to say I put a love spell on a guy. Instead of polygamy with like a sister wife, then you have like the Hugh Hefner like a swinging culture where it's it's still one man with very many women, but it's like the same thing functionally where they don't have any control over their life, have controls everything, they're dependent on him, etc. And then, you know, instead of like willful submission through loving adoration of your husband of Christian conservative women, there's like the BDSM, like I'm willfully submitting partner, but I'm really the person that's in power. Like when I look at how the sexual revolution played out from my perspective, and as an internal micro change within myself, and like, I think I maybe just figured out a little bit faster than maybe the culture at large was like, I was like, how is this different from Christianity? And as a person who was like, raised in Christianity, I remember being like, but this sucks. Like, why is it that like, it's basically the same power dynamic, but just like dressed up in leftist, like choosy choice language. Right. And so as I started to notice like that men are still taking the power positions in all of the situation, it's just women are rationalizing it differently. And sometimes they're not even rationalizing it differently. They're just saying they're saying the exact same thing, but just choosing parallel types of choices. I find it interesting that like there's been not a lot of like almost like sexual innovation from women, if that makes sense. Like, where do you feel like the sexual innovation needs to come from? Like it's not gonna come from porn culture because that's dominated by men, both as viewers and consumers. And it's not gonna come from like, you know, looking at like, apparently not from even like sex positive or sex therapy media, which so once again is so often by either women who buy certain narratives about men that seem 
absurd about like men have like men need to fuck a bunch of people because otherwise like they're not their best self and it's emotionally abusive to expect them to be monogamous and stuff like that like there's a lot of that kind of stuff it's like how come through all this sexual positivity stuff like there wasn't any like real innovation like i haven't seen that many like okay you're a female and you should have like a male harem type thing right? It's always like, you know what I'm saying? Like, or we were joking about how like, there's so many euphemisms for sexual acts in porn. Like if you want to do a gangbang or like a double penetration DP. And then we were like, so this is going to get graphic, but we were brainstorming like, what would be like a sexual equivalent for a woman? Like if you just have like multiple guys go down on you or give you oral sex, is there a name for that? No, there's not a name for that. Like there's just all these types of things that just don't exist in our popular culture. And I don't even see like feminist sex therapists like innovating this area. They're just like rationalizing what's already there yeah feminist porn still looks an awful lot like women just sucking dick doesn't it It doesn't really (laughs) it is and admittedly they have to do that because women just don't purchase enough of it for them to make a living yeah yeah yeah. oh it's just such a like a dead-end market yeah Yeah, when you look at porn sites for women, like it's always still TNA. It's always still boobs and butt and the prominent display. Like I don't see any gorgeous model tier guys. I mean, if they had nothing but porn of like Jason Momoa, then maybe I'd watch that shit. But it's just still the same. I want porn of like men just like chopping wood and like, I don't know, doing tasks and being competent. Like that's not even porn. That's just like... Guys being normal. I want to see more guys being normal. That's the kind of content I want to see. But ser- seriously, Lilith, like there was a guy that went viral because he was chopping wood and so many women thought it was hot. Yeah, that guy's hot as fuck. I love that. I love that guy. Exactly. And there's no sexual like if you look at the market, there's nothing like that for us. Like, I want, are there a bunch of like, OK, we're going to create like a slow motion video of a hot shirtless guy like chopping wood and stuff. Vote with our views, sis. Like, only pay attention to men who who serve the female gaze. <laughs> no one's creating it, even in the sex-positive feminist space. It's weird. <laughs> if you build it, they will come, okay? We gotta start. When we see it, we reward it, and then... Pun intended. And then the algorithm will eventually be like, oh, like, people want to see this more kind of thing. Like, stop looking at, like, stuff that degrades women. Start looking at more stuff that, you know women like looking at like hot guys chopping wood i don't know are you aware of this new so i only know about this because i had to i was asked to write about a piece about it for the telegraph this new platform called passion flicks which is owned by elon musk's sister all right so i'm gonna stop you right there (laughs) (laughs) and there's a lot going on in that sentence (laughs) anyway passion flicks it is it's basically a platform for like film of women's erotic fiction so a lot of it is based on like romance novels that have been really successful and turned into films and I had to watch some of it for the piece it's not my bag generally but it's apparently like romance fiction in general is not really my bag but it is apparently popular and yeah it's lots of like very muscly men brooding (laughs) and like quite a small proportion of the films actually involve sex scenes it's all more about like the emotional tumult of the relationships. So it's rom-coms with hot guys. So that's basically why 365 Days was popular because the movie is trash. But like, if you just actually put a man that women find attractive in the movie instead of all these like, quote, Hollywood attractive men. I don't know, Seth Rogen guys, like... Yeah. Ones that are trying to gaslight us into one and a fuck. Yeah. Well, Passion Flicks has every genre for man, if you're into it. Oh, so you can like porn sites, you know, they select by, you know, race, boob size, hair color, whatever, right? <laughs> you can't quite, but there are enough things that you could like browse through until you found your preference. And then they have a combination of like really short. So some of them are only like five minutes and some of them are 
feature length. I think also it doesn't lend itself to women's sexuality because like women like a certain level of like class in men. Like we don't get off by like degrading, disgusting men in the same way as like men want women who are degrading and disgusting. So then I bet that it's just harder to find porn stars that appeal to women because they have to not be creeps. This would be not like the average man. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Right, exactly. I'm like, if you look like a guy, I could just pick up, uh, you know, hanging out at a bus stop. I don't really want to have sex with that. You know what I mean? Like, it, this just looks like some guy who would be like trying to uh, jump on the front of your car to squeegee your window. <laughs> like, that's not a guy. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to switch gears a little bit, Louise, but I, I wanted to ask about your your new think tank. You mentioned this offline before, but, you know, tell us more. Now that you've kind of achieved what you wanted with We Can't Consent to It, you know, what's the next step for you? <laughs> Transitioning from men washing windows. Yeah. So, yeah, so We Can't Consent to This. It's now like coming up on five years old, I think. And we were able to um, to change the law, on the, which hopefully will make the rough sex defense more difficult. And uh, it's, a, it's a difficult legal problem. But the government did propose a new provision within the Domestic Abuse Act. So we're hoping that that is going to make it much more difficult. And yeah, our, and our question was, so where do we go next? And what we've done this summer, so literally just, you know, we, we barely have a website. This is super new, but we got a lump of funding to turn, we can't consent this into a, a mini think tank um, called The Other Half. And our, our reasoning behind it is that the world of feminist lobbying is very, very liberal feminist doesn't represent the views of most women. If you look at polling, right, it's very orientated towards sort of Hillary Clinton style feminist thinking. Equality is the favourite word, whatever. And is really hopeless mostly on things like porn because there's this fear of being, you know, rocking the boat on that kind of issue. I mean, it's what we were talking about at the top of the show, right? Like, why is there this 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 terror of talking about things like porn. I think it comes down to that fear of being kind of confused with conservatives. But, you know, we found that actually with getting the We Can't Consent to This attention and support within Parliament, we got just as, you know, it was a conservative government that acted on it. We had just as much support from conservatives as from Labour and Lib Dems. And we got just as much positive attention from right-wing media as left-wing media. So it's I think it's all about like trying to find these open doors that you can push on and actually you can achieve things that are good for women without needing to be partisan. Because actually I think the partisanship holds it back. Because I, I genuinely think that actually the relationship between feminism and the left is really vexed. I think there's increasingly a divergence. It's really not obvious to me that the left is like the natural home of feminism necessarily. And I mean, we all know that left-wing men are just as likely to be misogynist. There's really no, like, it's not a safe space by any means. <laughs> I don't think they're there that we're there yet in the United States. Like they're always putting out these studies about, oh, conservative men are more likely to think certain things about women, which may, which may or may not be true. But the implication is that always that like all of the bad things are coming from the conservative side. For example, we just did an episode about incels and like the Atlantic painted it like, oh, these incels, they're all right wing. But everybody who does research an incel and also from our experience uh, interacting with them, they're actually politically all over the place. And in fact, quite a few of them are leftist, but the intent is to always like, pain it is right wing because then like when something happens you know it's a way to score political points and so in the united states there's not been a conscious like divorce of feminism from the left wing party quite yet from democratic party they're starting to you know go cannonball into different types of gender neutrality and then obviously like gender ideology and then like what people are calling wokeness so to speak which is like a general theory of how different types of oppression interact with each other that's been 
apply to a bunch of other stuff that the original authors didn't necessarily mean. I mean, you're in a tricky spot, right? The right want to ban abortion, the left want to put male sex offenders in women's prisons. Yeah. So. <laughs> Man, that's a, yeah, that's a whole can. No, I mean, it's a whole can of worms. It's something that like, once again, nobody's voice on our side who's otherwise a leftist, but thinks like kind of common sense things about men and women and the differences need to be acknowledged. There's no place for that right now. Because like, if you say men and women have differences, you're a conservative. If you think you're supposed to, if you're going to be left wing, pretend that like every difference is a matter of uh, opinion or something or socialization completely rather than like maybe there's some innate sex differences unless you're talking about transgenderism and then it's like biology it's really weird so we're in a weird spot where like the left doesn't know it's just talking in circles and nobody will be platformed who talks about anything that makes sense (laughs) but doesn't follow the party line i think that things are a little bit more uh sunny in the uk and the thing that i take hope from is the fact that the grassroots response to efforts to reform the Gender Recognition Act from British TERFs was really successful. And also one of these things that really kind of cut across left and right, it wasn't really associated with either. Like you've got left-wing trade unionists kind of joining forces with like women's union style, women's institutes, sorry, I should say, style, like conservatism with a small c. And actually, like, successfully representing the interests of the vast majority of women who do not want, say, male sex offenders in their prisons. So, yeah, I think it's a really interesting time for feminism right now, which is, I think, I like, America and Britain, I think, are really different contexts at the moment. But it could well be that the sort of grassroots organising we've seen in the UK is replicated in America soon. Yeah, I think the biggest problem in the United States is not just, um, it's just geography and not even just ideology is that people who live in different states live entirely different lives. And so we might as well be living in different countries. And so sometimes it's harder for America to adjust compared to smaller countries because of how, I mean, you're, you're talking about, I don't know, our population size, maybe like 350 million or so people, and then they're geographically spread out and, you know, have different incentives. So it might be a, a while. So that's why so many movements, even grassroots movements take forever because you really got to get a lot of consensus across a bunch of different states because of the fact of how our federal government works. But it can happen. And, you know, it happened with the drug war. We're starting to see pushback on that, like in all of the states, you know, things like getting child marriage off the books started to ruminate through all the states. So like it can happen where suddenly everyone in the country is sort of on the same page about a particular issue. It just tends to take like years of work from people in all the different states. So to, I think, finish the conversation, In your book, it looks like you start to make an argument for a new sexual culture. What, in your opinion, would be the ideal? I mean, I basically think that what we've seen post-sexual revolution has been that women have been encouraged to imitate masculine sexuality, right? I mean, we've covered this from various angles over the course of the conversation, the kind of sex and city having sex like a man thing as the ideal. And I think that it would be a much healthier sexual culture would be one that actually encourages men to imitate female sexuality. Agreed. (laughs) (laughs) And be more... Get to chopping that wood, gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) Stable, monogamous, whatever, like long-term orientated. Yeah, I mean, the trade-off for that, right, and the response that I get from some men is that means that some men will end up being sexually frustrated, will be forced into monogamy when they'd rather sow their wild oats and whatever, to which I say, oh, the fuck well, I'm sorry. Yeah, to which I say, well, okay. <laughs> like, I accept your terms, gentlemen. That's, that's how it has to be. 
Them's the brakes. Because the alternative is women having unwanted sex, which is where we're at now. And I think that that's like my feminist principles say, no, that's unacceptable. Yeah, which women having unwanted sex is the norm and the glue that keeps us society together, right? And so if we start to unsticky that glue, you know, (laughs) the question is like, first of all, how are men going to react? Will men being pulled more to female sexuality? They're just going to have to suck it up, honestly. Yeah, I agree. There are some women, I'm sure, throughout history, many women who've gone their entire lives not even having an orgasm, okay? So... The idea that some men might not be able to get everything they want sexually, it's like, ah, tough luck, you know, join the club. That's normal to not have your every sexual desire or thought or whim satisfied. Like, that's normal to not meet that 100%. And they're just gonna have to suck it up. Once again, it would be really great if our, you know, our left-wing media would make this argument rather than like everything men want is a responsibility for women to provide either through sex work or directly through sex work or through like us being coerced into uh, relationships that don't sexually satisfy us. And, and we've roasted so many articles from mainstream media that I think one of the most egregious ones was like a guy that a woman just met had some kind of kink fetish and the woman wasn't really sure if she was open to it and was a little disgusted by it. And like the sex therapist was like, well, maybe he could play with this outside of the relationship and you give him space for that. I'm like, what relationship? She just met this guy. But like, this is, <laughs> I feel like the question, the answer is like sexually incompatible, move on. But it was like the immediate, the sex therapists are all involved in like telling women to be more open-minded and like let men sexually explore to their own detriment. Once again, these, this is feminist media. <laughs> this is what makes it so odd. And I'm like, you know, this guy almost got to be like a complete overhaul of sex positive culture and the women who are quote unquote pioneering it. But I have the sneaking suspicion that the women who are pioneering it are in it because it's trauma informed, right? And so that's kind of the thing with the sex positive angle is that women who are maybe having great sex lives and like are not trying to make it their entire identity are probably not going to make it like a company around sex positive engagement, so to speak. So that's like kind of the tough thing that probably women who have normal, healthy sexual relationships would self-select out of being a sex therapist. (laughs) (laughs) They probably want to hear disgusting shit men say either. It's like (laughs) self-protective. Yeah, I mean, I optimistically think that we've probably already hit peak sex positive. I think that it was, I think it is kind of on the way out. I think it's becoming less fashionable, uh, which can only be a good thing, particularly for young women. Like young women in this environment where being like choked by your boyfriend is high status. They're being so set up to fail and actually put in danger a culture that encourages them to have sex with violent men. So I think that's going. And I partly think that because I've had a surprisingly positive reception to what I'm doing. And we Hong Kong to this had a really, really positive reception. And yeah, I'm hoping that that's starting to change. So thank you, Louise Perry, for coming on our podcast. If you want to check out Louise Perry, where can we find you? So the book is, it's come out in the US like 10 days ago. And it's called The the Case Against Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century, available in all good bookshops. And if you want to follow you on Twitter? I am at Louise underscore M underscore Perry. Great. So check us out on our website, thefemaledatingstrategy.com forward slash forum. If you want to discuss this episode further, also check out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash thefemaledatingstrategy. Also check us out on Twitter at femdatstrat and on our Instagram at underscore thefemaledatingstrategy. Thanks for listening, queens. And for all you scrotes out there, get to chopping that wood. Die mad.